Yo, what is poppin', everybody? Welcome to the Uncensored Christian Podcast. I am, I'm hyped for this episode. I'm be honest with you. Um, I got a little question for you before we begin. Have y'all ever heard of the Book of Jacob? Did y'all know that there is a Book of Jacob in the New Testament? If not, that's okay because I just learned about it myself this week, and I wanted to share some of that with you and to learn about the book of Jacob. We're going to do a little scripture study over the book of James. I know it sounds weird. I know. Trust me. But just hold on. We're going to get through it together. I want to cover the book of of James chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. I did originally want to do the whole chapter, but there's just so much good stuff here. If I did the whole chapter, you'd be listening to an hour plus long podcast. And if I'm just being completely honest with you, I didn't feel like doing that. So we're going to break this up into two different segments and we're going to just cover the first 11 verses. I think I think there's a bunch of stuff in here that that we can learn. And I want to start in verse one so we can get an idea of what we're working with. It says this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Okay, cool. Now, remember when I ask you if you ever heard of the book of Jacob in the New Testament? So here's what's interesting. James's name is actually Jacob. <laughs> it's, it's weird. His name is actually Jacob. And if you don't believe me, we're going to break down the original language um, so we can see what's really going on here. So. The word that we translate to James, the Greek word is Jacobus, and that comes from just the, the plain Greek word of Jacob, and that comes from the Hebrew word of Jacob, which literally means Jacob. It, it literally means Jacob. So the name that we translate to James actually should be translated to Jacob. And if you don't believe me, that's fine. You can go look. If you have like the Bible app, go on there and go to James chapter one, verse one, and look through different translations. And what you'll see is on some of them, they will have footnotes right where right next to the name of James, it says, or Jacob, his, his actual name in the Greek should be translated Jacob. Don't ask me why we translated James. There's so many different theories and there's rabbit holes you can go down as to, you know, People messed up a single letter when they were translating it to Latin and somehow that just, you know, stuck forever. But his actual name is Jacob. It's really weird. So for the sake of the rest of this podcast to stay true to what the word actually says, um, we're going to be reading from the book of Jacob, chapter one, verses one through 11. And we're going to refer to him as Jacob because, well, that's his name. So we know that this is now a letter from Jacob and he's writing to a certain group of people. He said that he's writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers who are scattered abroad. And what's interesting is that these Jewish believers that are scattered abroad, we we first hear about them in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And what happened was, is in the chapter right before Acts chapter 8, we hear about this guy named Stephen. And the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem didn't like the fact that Stephen was a believer and he was, you know, sharing the gospel. So they wanted to, they wanted to challenge him. They wanted to try and throw him in prison. They want to get rid of him. And Stephen goes off. I mean, Stephen was spitting flames. I never seen a dude drop as many bars as Stephen dropped on these people. He quotes and goes through the entire story 
from creation to where they were now because they were claiming that he was, you know, speaking falsely about this. And he just, oh my goodness, he just lights them up. It's honestly amazing in Acts chapter seven. And what ends up happening, long story short, is they didn't like it. They stoned him to death. So here in Acts eight, verse one, we, we kind of see the consequences of that. So let's check this out. It says that Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles were scattered, scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So they got scattered because of this persecution. And in verse three, in, in Acts chapter eight, verse three, it gives us more context as to what was happening. He says, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So he is speaking to a group of Messianic Jews who were being persecuted and were forced to scatter. And so he's writing to them and he's about to impart on them some wisdom and, and some things that they can definitely think about and learn from. But before we get into that, I want to also point out something else in, in verse one. There's a lot of stuff in verse one. <laughs> it's really cool. I want to point out the description that Jacob gives himself. He says that he's a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, just like in Jude, this interests me. Because Jacob is actually the brother of Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, but if this was me, and I'm writing a letter to the church, or I'm about to get up, and I'm about to give a sermon, and Jesus is my brother, the savior of the world, is my sibling? Oh boy, you best believe I'd be like, hey, yo, what's up, Jewish believers? I know y'all scattered across the land, but it's your boy, Jacob, and guess what? I'm the brother of Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, you know that dude that died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and it was clear that he is God in the flesh? <laughs> That's my bro. We grew up together. We played together. He taught me secrets. That's my bro. So now that y'all know that that's my brother, now you got to listen to me. If that was me, oh man, I would be milking that cow all day long. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Jacob realizes that it's not the brotherly bond that he has with Jesus that gives him relevance. It's the fact that he is submitted to Jesus that gives him relevance. It's also important to note that Jacob didn't even believe in Jesus at the onset of his ministry. John chapter 7 tells us this in verse 5 it says, For even his brothers didn't believe in him. So, What's more important for Jacob is that everyone knows that the brothers who initially didn't believe in him are now fully submitted to him. And he understands that what's most important is not the fact that he's a sibling, but that he is a servant. And for some people, this idea of being a slave to God or being a slave to Jesus, this might seem kind of weird, especially with our modern understanding of what slavery was, especially in America. But what's surprising is that it's actually an endearing term. It's a compliment. The Greek word for slave, which is doulos, is, is used with the highest dignity in the New Testament for believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers. So it's very interesting that Jacob introduces himself as a slave to Jesus and not as his sibling. But on to verse two, he says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. 
For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, the reason why I pointed out who Jacob was writing to is because if we don't fully acknowledge and understand the context of what he or of who he is writing to, then we can really miss the power of what Jacob is saying here when it comes to troubles coming our way. I always made the mistake of interpreting this verse, um, and I would use it in my trivial situations throughout my you know, privileged life where I'd like go to McDonald's and I ask for a McDouble with no pickles and they'd give me pickles and I'd be like, Lord, <laughs> they tested me, but I'm using this as an opportunity for great joy. I would just completely misapply the, the power of what Jacob is really saying. And, and I'm not saying that we cannot use this verse or apply this verse to any trials or troubles that come our way. But what I'm saying is, is that if we don't understand who he was writing to and what they were dealing with, we can water down the power of this scripture and we can water down what God truly does for our, our faith and our opportunity for great joy. And I don't want us to make that mistake. We got to remember that he is writing this to people who literally had to abandon their homes and flee their city because they were being persecuted, thrown in jail, and even killed for what they believed. That's the troubles that he's referring to. That's the troubles that he is wanting them to see an opportunity for great joy. And honestly, if anybody should know about these troubles, it would be Jacob. He ultimately ended up being martyred for what he believed. One thing a lot of skeptics or, or people who try and oppose Christianity will will say is like, oh, so the whole the whole message of Jesus and the whole message of the gospel is that you're just supposed to be happy when you get hurt. You're supposed to be happy that bad things happen to you. And what's interesting is that this never says that. It, it, it doesn't say that you need to be happy about the troubles. What it says is that when troubles come your way, see that these are opportunities to have joy. See, Jacob realizes that these troubles always bring about an opportunity for joy. And it may not be today. For, for some of us, if we, just, if, we, if we just faced a heartbreaking trial, if someone that we loved just died or, or we were faced with, with something terrible, a terrible evil that happened to us or to someone that we love, the idea that we need to find joy in that, in that very moment, is, is hard to do, is it not? But Jacob doesn't give us a time frame on when we need to find an opportunity for great joy. He understands that we need to go through the grieving process, that we need time to heal, that we need time to, to fully understand what is going on. But what he says is that there will be an opportunity for great joy. may not be today. may not be tomorrow. It may take some time. But at the end of it, no matter how bad it is, there is always an opportunity for joy. And then he goes on to talk about our endurance with our faith. And what, what, what really struck me is that he doesn't talk about strengthening our faith. His focus is on the endurance of our faith. That's kind of interesting. 
he realizes that in our fallen world, we may live our whole life in a trial. He realizes that there's not just going to be one trouble that comes our way. There's not even going to be two, but that our lives, just the sheer fact that we live in a fallen world, we will face troubles time and time again. And it's not our faith that needs to get stronger to be able to go through these trials. It's our faith that needs to have better endurance, better steadfastness. It needs to be able to be patient through the troubles that we face. The Greek word that's used for endurance here is hupomone. I just completely butchered that, but that's okay. But it means a remaining behind or a patient enduring. That means that although we are going to face trials, Sometimes these trials and troubles may last longer than we would have ever thought they could. But he realizes that if we, if we stay steadfast and we continue to endure, we can be patient through the trials, knowing that at some point, whether it's in this life or the next, that we will find justice and joy because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And one question that came to my mind is when he says that your endurance will be fully developed and you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What does it mean to be perfect and complete, needing nothing? My initial thought was, oh, maybe he's talking about like physically, like like if we just endure it long enough, we physically won't need anything. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. We can find one example of why this might be the case in 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And Paul is writing to the, the church in Corinth, and he says, We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. So even Paul is is echoing the sentiment of patiently enduring troubles. But he then goes on to say that while they're patiently enduring this trouble, they're still going without food. They still hunger. They still are deprived of sleep and they are weary. So I don't think that being perfect and complete needing nothing refers to um, a physical need. I think it means spiritually regarding our faith. That with enough patience and endurance and trust in Jesus, we can strengthen our faith and strengthen our endurance to a point where we spiritually do not need any extra to endure. I could be wrong, but, but that's my best way of trying to understand what it means to be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Let's continue on, on to verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. That's good news. That's good news to know that in any situation of our life, if we need wisdom, that all we have to do is just simply ask God for it, and he will supply that wisdom to us. That should be refreshing for someone. On to verse 6, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not doubt, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Do not doubt. That's interesting. Some translations will say waver instead of doubt, 
But the actual word that, that is translated from the Greek is the word doubt. And here's another example where English can mess up our understanding. It can, it can actually alter how we understand what these verses mean if these translations are not a perfect one for one. Um, I think of it like this. There are words that we use now that don't mean the same things that they used to mean. Like, like now, for instance, the word dope, the, the word dope means cool. Like, oh man, that's dope. That's tight. But, but back in the day, dope meant like drugs. <laughs> it, it's the same word, but it has completely different meanings. And that's kind of the same thing with doubt. How we understand doubt is that it's a feeling of uncertainty that you are not 100% sure or convinced. It means that you have some questions that you're uncertain. If we put that meaning and that definition of doubt into what the scripture says here, it's kind of scary, isn't it? If we plug that in, it means that if we are uncertain at any moment, if we, if we fail to be 100% certain about anything, then just like he says in verse 7, such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That's scary. If that's the understanding of doubt that we should have, but luckily it's not. And we need to understand the original language to figure out what Jacob is saying here. The Greek word that we translate as doubt is the word diakrino, which literally broken down means to separate thoroughly, to separate thoroughly. That means that you're not just a little bit uncertain and you have questions. Separate thoroughly means that you are completely separated from that belief. You are completely separated from that conclusion and you have decided to go another way. And if Jacob wanted to portray a message of an uncertain type of doubt where you have some type of questions where you may waver, there's another Greek word, a perfectly good Greek word that he could have used to portray that message. And that Greek word is the word distazo. And it literally means to duplicate or waver, to be uncertain. So if Jacob wanted us to understand doubt in the way that we understand it in our modern language, in our modern culture, he could have used a different word, but he didn't. The word that Jacob used meant to separate thoroughly. And, and if we understand the rest of this context through verses seven and eight, it's pretty clear that that's what he means. He says, such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. Their, Lord, their loyalty is separated thoroughly between God and the world. And this should bring us some joy because this does not mean that we can never be uncertain or that we can never ask questions or that we can never have a type of wavering doubt as we currently understand it. What it means is that if we are going to, to ask God in faith, if we're going to expect to be walking in right standing with God, we cannot be separated from a belief that God wants what's best for us. We cannot be separated thoroughly to where we no longer are fully believing in God, but we're fully believing in other things in the world. So that should, that should bring some, some joy and some clarity to some people. I know it did for me when I understood that. On to verse 9. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. Let me ask y'all this, and I may be the only one, but I hope someone else 
feels the same way because <laughs> I'm feel pretty stupid if I'm the only one that feels this way. But have have y'all ever felt put off with how Jesus and how the Bible talks about the rich? Like, has there ever been a moment where you were like, "Dang, Jesus, chill!" Like, like homies just trying to to make a living. Like, like why are you talking so 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 down upon the rich? And I never really understood it until I started to hear Jesus talk about helping the poor. I never understood it until I started hearing Jesus talk about helping the poor, the orphans, and the widows. It always seemed unfair to me at first that Jesus would talk so badly about the poor. You know, he would say that the poor will not inherit the kingdom. That basically saying that, or sorry, that the rich will not inherit the kingdom. He's basically saying that if you're rich, you're not going to get to heaven. And I'm sitting here going, dang, like, like what's wrong with people having money, Jesus? And I never understood. And I always thought that this was unfair until I had this thought. I thought this a while ago, and, and I wanted to just try and explore this um, and, and see if maybe some of you have the same thought process. But if we were really following the example that Jesus set for us, would anyone be rich? Like, is it possible to be rich and fully live out what Jesus has commanded us to do? Isn't that interesting? And I guess the first question would be, well, rich by what standards? And there's many different ways that you can break it down. I mean, what's crazy is that if you think about it, in our Western culture, even even those who wouldn't be considered rich in our current Western culture, in comparison to the whole world, we are rich. There is a study in 2018 by the Global Wealth Report that said if you make more than 93,170 US dollars, you are richer than 90% of the world. And if you have more than $4,210 to your name, not not what you make on a monthly basis, but just to your name, if you have $4,201, you are richer than half the population. So by what standard would we consider someone to be rich? Would it be by the standards of their community? Would it be by the standards of the entire world? I mean, I generally would have to believe that that being rich would have to extend to the standards of the world. Because Jesus didn't call us to just help the poor and the orphans and the widows in our immediate community. I mean, the whole mandate of the gospel was to be preached to all the nations. So you would assume that if the gospel is supposed to be preached to all the nations, that the commandments within them are supposed to be extended to everyone in the world. And so I go back to this thought that, is it even possible for someone to be rich if you are fully doing what Jesus commanded? That's interesting. It makes me feel bad about myself. And it makes me question what I'm doing in my life. because. If in comparison to the vast majority of the entire human population, I am rich in comparison to that, then what what am I not doing? I'm obviously not giving everything I can to the poor. And you may be able to look at your own life and think, huh, is is it, I don't think it's possible 
for you to be rich and to fully be doing what Jesus commanded because any extra blessing that God blessed you with in terms of money, you would be following the commands of Jesus to be giving that generously to those who need it. Because clearly if it's an excess of wealth, you don't need it because it's an excess. That's something I got to look, look to in my heart. And maybe you do too. I mean, there's so many things in our world that are arbitrary that we do not need for survival. We spend thousands of dollars on cell phones that we don't need. We can live with far cheaper things. But a lot of times we splurge in excess on things that we don't need while there are people, oftentimes even in our own communities, that aren't even able to feed their kids. We'll, we'll, we'll spend money on subscriptions and, and on all these nice things that we don't need for survival when there are people who are dying because they couldn't afford fresh water. And I wonder if, if as a society, as, a, as the body of Christ, I wonder if we are failing the mandate that Jesus clearly gave to us time and time again to generously give to the poor. I don't know. Maybe that's something we need to think about. Maybe that's something we need to think about further. But James is pretty clear here. He says, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. Maybe this is an opportunity for us to be humbled, to see that, that there is more that we could be doing to, to be fulfilling the mandate that Jesus gave us. I don't know. But I'll leave you with that. That'll be the end of the podcast. I'll leave you with that and allow you to think on that because I know I will. Hope you all have a great day.